Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled, We Believe in the Resurrection. Today on Words of Grace, we come to one of the final messages in our series through the standard articles of faith of Baptist churches of history in the United States and also primitive Baptist churches of today. Not to be repetitious, but just as a reminder, and perhaps for those tuning in today for the first time, we're going principle by principle through what we call the Articles of Faith. Sometimes these are also called the Statement of Faith of a given church and the Abstract of Principles. And that phrase, Abstract of Principles, is probably the least most common title of these sets of articles. Now, we're using two compilations of articles as our source material. The first, our statement here at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama, and these date to 1808. These were the Articles of Faith of the Elk River Association, which was in Tennessee and eventually what would be Alabama. When the first Baptist Association of the state of Alabama, the Flint River Association, was formed, these were her Articles of Faith, and they were the Articles of Faith of basically every historic Baptist church in early Alabama. When our church was founded, it was actually in Mississippi Territory, what would later become the great state of Alabama. And in that time period in this region, they were very common, these particular articles. The second material that we consider, and we have contrasted and reflected upon the similarities, and they have been identical in the doctrinal sentiment, is the statement of faith from the church at which I grew up, which is Ebenezer Primitive Baptist Church in Shelby County, and that church dates to 1868. Our subject matter today pertains to a branch of theology called eschatology, or the study of end times. In other words, what is going to happen at the very end of time? How is the world going to end? What is going to occur? Now, just a bit of a preface. If you're expecting to hear a word about a secret rapture, a tribulation period of seven years, and a millennial reign here on earth from the temple in Jerusalem before the final end of all of the world, you're going to be surprised. The reason being, most of those notions come from a system of doctrines largely invented by a man named John Nelson Darby, some of which he allegedly borrowed from the dreams of other people, one in specific, a 15-year-old girl named Martha, who had a series of dreams that she believed to be visions. Not quite the things that we want to base our Bible doctrines off of, the dreams of a teenage girl. And Darby's views date to the 1830s. This is known today as dispensationalism. And as I speak about that, I hope you're not offended. I recognize that many people in the listening audience today probably come from a dispensational background. But just understand that those perspectives, those points of view, are a rather American way of viewing both the Bible and the end of time 
and they are not the historic viewpoints of the church. So if our articles of faith here at Flint River date to 1808, and dispensationalism dates to the 1830s, would you expect to find dispensationalism in our statement of faith? No. I'd also add that Darby's views were rejected as heretical until the publishing of the Schofield Bible, which effectively used his commentary on the Olivet Discourse in its notes. So what we emphasize today is a more historic and historically accepted framework. Speaking of history, there are three basic categories one would find his or herself in through the ages as it related to the end of time and eschatology. If you Google graphs of eschatology today, much of what you'll find has to do with which camp of dispensationalism one finds himself in. And so you have those who believe in a seven-year tribulation before the rapture. Some believe in a seven-year tribulation after the rapture. But what I'm speaking of are points of view that predate dispensationalism, things that were believed for more than 1,800 years prior to dispensationalism. In other words, the majority of New Testament history. If you find older graphs, they will give you the three basic categories one would find himself or herself in through the ages. The first is historic premillennialism. These people interpreted the millennial reign from Revelation chapter 20 as literal, where Christ would return and usher in a sort of Sabbath millennia. And usually this happens at around the year 6,000 in human history, which is, interestingly enough, around the time of history that we are at right now. And the historic premillennialists just simply believe that Jesus would return, that he would rule in this world, and after a thousand years he would ascend up to glory, there would be this general judgment, and that would be the end of it all. Now, that is very distinct from what dispensationalists believe. That's very distinct from dispensationalism, and so when people speak or write about it, they often refer to it as historic premillennialism. The second is postmillennialism, and basically what postmillennialists believe, they believe that the world will eventually be evangelized, fully, completely, and because of the influence of the gospel upon people, the nations, that doesn't mean everyone in the post-mill perspective is going to be a born-again person. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to be a Christian, but Christianity so influences the world that it will usher in a utopia of a thousand years where Christ's kingdom that he established in his personal ministry in the first century will sort of rule over this world, and then at the end of that thousand-year reign, well, Satan will be loosed, and the world will be destroyed after the second coming, the resurrection, and the general judgment. And then the third camp of eschatology, which is the one that I admit to you is my particular perspective, is that of amillennialism. Now, that is a little bit of a misnomer, because amillennial, sometimes this is shortened as amill, means no millennia. Well, we don't reject the concept of the thousand years as we find it in Revelation chapter 20, and I'm sure most of us here understand exactly what I'm referring to, the thousand-year reign in Revelation chapter 20. We simply believe that the thousand-year reign in Revelation is symbolic for the church age, 
And I would add a time period in which the souls of saints who die reign with Christ above, and this will be followed by a simultaneous resurrection of the just and the unjust and the destruction of the universe at the second coming of Christ. If you've ever read Revelation chapter 20 very carefully, you know that what John sees is not saints who are reigning with Jesus here in the world, but he sees the souls of those who were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Well, what does John see? He sees souls of people who have already been beheaded. And so I interpret this very literally. I believe that this thousand years here certainly is a symbolic number, as it is used many other times in Scripture. A day is under the Lord as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. Thousand sometimes can be a symbolic number for a large but determined quantity of things. The cattle of a thousand hills as one instance of that. But the part about souls being beheaded and then reigning with Christ after their martyrdom, well, I believe that's literally. I don't believe that happens here. I believe that happens in glory throughout the church age as his martyrs are delivered from this world and their souls are with him in glory. So we actually believe a more literal version of this as far as what the letter of the Bible says than some of these other eschatological camps. Again, John saw thrones, and judgment was given unto them, and he saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. He sees souls. What are the people who are in heaven today? They are disembodied souls. Their body sleeps in the ground, but their souls reign with Christ, and that's what John sees in the Revelation. And so that's our perspective here, and that's my personal opinion on this. Amillennialism, believing that the thousand years of Revelation is symbolic for the church age, in which the souls of saints who die reign with Christ above, and this will be followed by a simultaneous resurrection of the just and the unjust, and the destruction of the universe at the second coming of Christ. Now, I will also add that adherents of these three viewpoints got along, generally, in a peaceful way in church history, because after all, prophecy in advance is a good bit more difficult to get right. Now, as an example of that, while much was written about eschatology in church history, you'll notice how much less is written of this topic in some of the major confessions of faith of various denominations compared to other doctrines. And it's because there wasn't consensus. There wasn't general agreement among people. Adherence to either of these three viewpoints got along peacefully in general. They gave leeway on this issue. And I'm inclined to do the same with the exception of some of these crazy dispensationalism ideas which creates major problems in the Bible, even in the doctrine of salvation. You see, with dispensationalism, rather than merely being a view of the end times, it's an entire framework for interpreting the Bible. It takes over one's thinking. The Bible describes the elect as the people of God out of every nation, kindred, and tongue, and it says that they are not all Israel which are of Israel. The Bible points out people who were Jewish but at the same time were of their father the devil, 
just as much as it points out people who were Jewish who are elect of God. God has a people among every nation, kindred, and tongue, and those people are his elect. But many dispensationalists believe the elect has reference only to Israel, and that Israel is more important, and the people of Israel, regardless of whether they know Christ or not, are more important than even believers. Dispensationalism would have the kingdom of heaven not being here yet. And yet Jesus said in the first century, the kingdom is at hand. I believe the kingdom of heaven is here today. If you've ever experienced the peace and joy of Christ in his church, then you have experienced the kingdom. That is his kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. It is not of this world. But dispensationalists place the kingdom of heaven as something that will be ushered in because Jesus didn't succeed at establishing it the first time, and the church is some sort of a band-aid or a spare tire to bring the Old Testament up to the time of the establishing of his kingdom, it creates issues all through the Word of God. It affects prophecies of the Old Testament. It affects the way we interpret the importance of the church and the church age. And it alters the view of salvation. There are all sorts of problems that are created by this framework that we know as dispensationalism as it relates to theology. And I would also go as far as to say that it creates all kinds of problems with the way that we look at the world around us. Now, back to the study for today. We want to look at both Articles 10 and 11 from our Statement of Faith, as grouping them together makes perfect sense. And we'll also consider Article 8 from the later version of the Articles of Faith, which dates to the late 1800s. From Flint River's Statement of Faith, we believe in the resurrection of the dead, and in a general judgment. That's Article 10. Article 11 says, We believe that the punishment of the wicked and the joys of the righteous will be eternal. From the later statement of faith from Ebenezer Primitive Baptist Church, and this is the one that's more commonly held to a variation of it in today's time, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and in a general judgment and that the punishment of the wicked will be everlasting and the joys of the righteous shall be eternal. Now, the differences here primarily exist in that the later statement combines both Articles 10 and 11 into one. You do have language at the very end of that saying that the punishment of the wicked will be everlasting and the joys of the righteous will be eternal. And offering my thoughts on this, the difference between everlasting and eternal, in the minds of those who crafted that statement, you notice in the older one, the word eternal is used for both. But here, in this later one, the punishment of the wicked will be everlasting, the joys of the righteous will be eternal. I speculate in conjecture that perhaps the joys of the righteous being eternal versus the punishment of the wicked being everlasting had to do with eternal being not only a quantity, but a quality, whereas the word everlasting simply had reference to quantity. In other words, they might say, well, the punishment of the wicked is everlasting. It never ends, but the joys of the righteous will be eternal, not only in quantity, in number of years or days or moments, etc., and that example fails because God is timeless, but you understand what I'm saying, not only in terms of quantity, but also in quality, the quality of eternal life. And that is a valid point. That is a valid point. However, God is from everlasting to everlasting. So if that were a hill that we were going to die on, we would find ourselves making a mountain out of a molehill, to mix my metaphors. It's not worth arguing over. And we'll comment more on this everlasting versus eternal in just a moment. 
but these are basically identical. The older statement dividing each point into a separate article and the later combining them into one. So let's take this statement, a point or a phrase at a time. First of all, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Previously, we spoke about the resurrection of the soul in a message on the subject of quickening, and a passage that we considered was Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. If you are a saved person, you are a person who has been spiritually resurrected. And the fact that you believe in Christ is proof that you are spiritually alive. Because we believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. In the same way that Christ was resurrected, so have our souls been resurrected from death and sin. Death and trespasses and in sins to life in Christ. In the same way that your soul has been raised, your body will be raised at the end of time. Now, I have grouped those two concepts, the new birth and the resurrection, together on purpose today, because that's exactly what our Lord Jesus did in John chapter 5, which we considered in the aforementioned broadcast about the new birth weeks ago. But notice this from the book of John chapter 5. Jesus is speaking of his Father working hitherto, and he works hitherto. It is the Sabbath. People are mad at him because he has worked on the Sabbath day. And basically the point that Jesus is making is that God works every day. The Sabbath was not made for God. The Sabbath was made for man. And one of the things that Jesus does every single day is he quickens his children. God doesn't take a break from quickening his children on the Sabbath, which in this day, being still the Old Covenant, was Saturday. Christ was saving his people on Saturday, just like Christ was saving his people from death and sin, from depravity, via the new birth, every day of the week. My Father works hitherto, and I work. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, presently, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now, that sounds like a resurrection, and it is, but it's not the resurrection at the last day. He's referring to something that was presently happening in the world as he spoke, that is, the new birth. Then Jesus goes on to say in verse 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, you notice that this takes place in a singular hour, a singular hour. The just and the unjust, the good and the wicked, his people, those who are not his people, they all come from the grave in the same hour at the command of Christ, at the voice of the Son of God. Jesus here explicitly states that there is coming an hour, a singular hour, in the which he will raise both the just and the unjust at the same time. And following this resurrection is a judgment. Now, a note on doing good and doing evil in this passage. This isn't teaching that salvation is by works. It's not teaching that you have to do more good than bad to go to glory. Let's unpack the theology of this statement. First of all, if we are depraved, 
and we are not born again, 100% of what we do is just that, evil. Even if it seems to be neutral, what a natural man does is tainted by sin. It's not a sinful thing, necessarily, when a natural man gets up and goes to work in the morning, but everything he does in that process is tainted by sin. And there's a whole lot of wicked living that is more than neutral, but quite active as well. Remember that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith, this gift and this grace of faith, which is literally Christ in you, the hope of glory. Without this, it is impossible to please God. The just shall live by faith. All that we do to serve God is to be by faith. And this faith that we have is Christ in us, the hope of glory, so that whatever we do by faith, we do through the power of Christ within us. And you just go read the honor roll of faith in Hebrews 11, and you see example after example of people who did things by faith, that is to say, the power of Christ in them. And so I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, and the non-elect are never given faith to start with. The non-elect also do much to displease God as well in their lives, according to Romans 1, acting in accordance with the only nature that they have. They engage in idolatry and the worship of the creature more than the Creator. They engage in immorality, in sexual immorality, including very, very serious and perverse forms of immorality and abuse. According to Romans 3, their feet are swift to shed blood. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They have venomous toxins in their lips. The poison of an asp, Paul would say. The wicked are just that. They are wicked. And that is all of us by nature. We are no better by nature than they are. Those who do good conversely do good because the Holy Spirit is sent into their hearts. The purpose of this passage is not to give requirements for salvation, but a general description of each type of people. We've all done evil. There is none that is good. Our goodness is given to us from Christ. And so those who are raised to the resurrection of damnation who have done evil, that is all they have done. And those who have done good do good because Christ gave them his goodness. As you might recall from our message on the resurrection of Christ back at Easter, the resurrection of Christ is also linked with the resurrection of our bodies in such a strong way that if we do not rise, then he isn't risen either. And he is. So we know that we will rise again. Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which I would encourage you to read, to confront a heretical faction in the church at Corinth, and he presents a perfect God-inspired defense of the resurrection of our bodies in that chapter. Continuing today, we believe in the resurrection of the dead, and again, this is a simultaneous resurrection of both the just and the unjust, according to John 5, and then a general judgment. Matthew chapter 25 is in the Olivet Discourse, in which the apostles ask Jesus three questions. The first pertained to the destruction of Jerusalem, which was in the first century, and the other two have to do with his second coming and the destruction of the world. In Matthew 25 and verse 31, we read about the Son of Man coming in all of his glory with the holy angels with him, and he sits upon the throne of his glory. Before him are gathered all nations, and he divides them as a shepherd divides between his sheep and the goats. And that is the great white throne judgment. The sheep represent God's people, 
in Matthew 25, and the goats represent the wicked, the non-elect, etc. This corresponds with Revelation chapter 20, in which the dead are raised and judged according to their works and then punished. Now remember, God's children are not the dead. Even when we die, we are asleep. God is not the God of the dead, but God is a God of the living. Death has a stronger meaning here in Revelation chapter 20, when he raises the dead, and they're judged according to the books, according to the things that they have done, which are recorded in the books. The dead there have reference to those who are dead twice, twice dead, as Jude would say. They are dead in sin, and they had been corporally dead and are now raised again. In that judgment, the white throne judgment, on what basis are God's elect judged? They are judged based upon the righteousness of Christ, according to many passages, but especially 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says that he that knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so in that day, Jesus presents us to his Father with the words, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me, as we find in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 13. Lastly, at this day, a day which the Apostle Peter calls the last day, the final day, the day of the Lord, the world and all that is in it shall pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and all the works therein shall be burned up, and we will be carried away to a place called the new heavens and the new earth. This old world at that judgment will be destroyed. Now, this brings me to the last portion of today's material. We believe the joys of the righteous and the punishment of the wicked will be eternal or everlasting. I use those words eternal and everlasting interchangeably on purpose because I've heard, namely from those who deny hell, claim there was a difference between these two words, everlasting and eternal. Well, I'm sorry to tell you if that's your perspective, but these actually translate from the same Greek word. The wicked are raised, yet in their same sinful state they died in, and they are sent away into everlasting punishment, according to Matthew 25 and verse 46. There are many different descriptions of this in the Bible. They go to everlasting darkness. They go to a place where their worm dies not. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a biblical phrase for anger and hostility, I would add. Paul refers to this as Christ returning in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God. In the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, as he was predicting the judgment of their persecutors, those who had killed them. But the joys of the righteous shall be eternal and everlasting. What will heaven be like? We know very little of it other than it is a place of bliss in the personal presence of God. But we do know what it will not have. First of all, all of our enemies will be banished. Also, it will have no sin. There will be no sin when we go to be with Christ in glory. According to Revelation chapter 21, the new heaven and the new earth will be a place of no tears. It will have no sorrow. It will have no crying. It will have no death. And we will be there forever in the personal presence of of our God. It's fitting then, as Paul wrote to a persecuted congregation which had seen many faithful saints die in martyrdom, to comfort them and to tell them to comfort one another with the words of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The doctrine of the end of time should bring us much comfort and not fear. As Paul wrote, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them or go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write. Let me know that you've received today's broadcast and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.